Hi, everyone. Welcome to Here We Stand. This is Kevin Annett, Eagle Strong Voice, and it's December 10th. Well, everyone, as you may or may not know, kicking the biggest butts in town is the best way to get results and also a way to have fun while you're doing it. George Bernard Shaw once said that the only thing rulers really fear is to be laughed at. They can accommodate protests and lawsuits and all the talk in the world, but what they can't deal with is to be mocked because then their so-called authority goes down the toilet. That's something we forget too easily, and we shouldn't because that emperor authority figure is really quite naked and ridiculous, something that's obvious to anyone once they lose their fear of the guy with the crown and know him for what he is. For nearly nine years on Here We Stand, we've shown you the nature of a criminal church, state, and corporate system and what to do to replace their stupidity, as we're doing through our sovereign republic of Canada. We've shown you that behind their money and thrones and robes, they're just sick people who only have the power that we give to them. So now, as always, it's time to take back that power, people. And one big way we do that is with the laughter that restores our hopes and our humanity and pulls the mighty down off their thrones. And that's the theme of today's show. But before that, let me remind everyone that of the latest comic routine emanating from London, as Charlie Windsor the Brainless struggles to keep that imaginary crown on his head after being found guilty of ordering the murder of William Coombs and 10 other Native people in Canada. That's right, Charlie issued the kill order with the usual banal aim of covering up royal and church crimes against children. But like good old Willie Shakespeare said, tragedy is always followed by farce, like when mass murderers issue apologies to their victims. But in King Charlie's case, he, the rats are starting to desert the foundering ship of state. Chuck's own security advisor is ratting him out. That's right, Charlie's co-conspirator, Major Johnny Thompson, is now starting to name other names, thanks to the pressure our court verdict of November 20th is causing. So tomorrow, we're issuing a legal notice to all the police forces in Canada and England, and that notice, it's really a warrant, it deputizes them to help us not only arrest Charles Windsor, but seize crown land and wealth and do away with monarchy of every sort. After all, that's our common law right under Magna Carta, Section 61. Just read it. And watching the comical reaction of these guilty rulers as we topple them from their summits is really like watching a deer get caught in the headlights. So why deny yourself the enjoyment, people? Get on board and help us kick the biggest butts in town and boot them out of our world. Check out the latest postings at murderbydecree.com under ITCCS Updates, November 20th. For more information, and write to us at Republic National Council at protonmail.com. There'll be a lot more on that next week in the show, including about our upcoming actions inside churches on Sunday, December 24th, where we'll mock and unsettle the criminals in Rome in, and in robes. <laughs> but for now, on with the show, starting with a song from our good friends from Saskatchewan, The Arrogant Worms. This is Kevin Annett, Eagle Strong Voice. Stay bad. I used to be a farmer and I made a living fine I had a little stretch of land along the CP line But times went by and though I tried the money wasn't there And bankers came and took my land and told me fair is fair I looked for every kind of job, the answer always no Hire you now, they'd always laugh, we just let twenty go The government, they promised me a measly little sum but I've got too much pride to end up just another bum Then I thought, who gives a damn if all the jobs are gone? I'm gonna be a pirate on the river Saskatchewan Cause it's a heave-ho, hi-ho, coming down the plains 
steel, wheat and barley and all the other grains. It's a ho, hey, hi, hey, farmers bar your doors when you see the jolly roger on Regina's mighty shores. Well, you'd think the local farmers would know that I'm at large, but just the other day I found an unprotected barge. I snuck up right behind them and they were none the wiser. I rammed their ship and sank it and I stole their fertilizer. A bridge outside of Moose Jaw spans a mighty river. Farmers cross in so much fear their stomachs are a quiver because they know that Tractor Jack is hiding in the bay. I'll jump the bridge and knock them cold and sail off with their hay. Because it's a hee-ho, hi-ho, coming down the plains. Stealing wheat and barley and all the other grains. It's a ho, hey, hi, hey, farmers bar your doors when you see the Jolly Roger on Regina's mighty shores. Well, Mountie Bob, he chased me, he was always at my throat. He'd follow on the shoreline, but he didn't own a boat. But cutbacks were a-coming, so the Mountie lost his job. So now he's sailing with me, and we call him Salty Bob. A swinging sword, a skull and bones, and pleasant company. I never pay my income tax and screw the GST. Screw it! Albert down to Saskatoon, the terror of the sea. If you want to reach the co-op, boy, you gotta get by me. Cause it's a heave-ho, hi-ho, coming down the plains. Stealing wheat, barley, and all the other grains. It's a ho, hey, hi, hey, farmer's party doors. When you see the Jolly Roger on Regina's mighty shores. Arrrr, matey. Get it? Matey. Oh, hey, hey, that, that's really funny. You know, Louis Riel? Well, pirate life's appealing, but you don't just find it here. I've heard that in Alberta, there's a band of buccaneers. They roam the Athabasca from Smith to Fort McKay. And you're gonna lose your Stetson if you have to pass their way. Well, winter is a-coming and a chill is in the breeze. My pirate days are over once the river starts to freeze. I'll be back in springtime, but now I have to go. I hear there's lots of plundering down in New Mexico. Cause it's a heave-ho, hi-ho, coming down the plains. Stealing wheat and barley and all the other grains. It's a ho, hey, hi, hey, farmers bar your doors when you see the Jolly Roger on Regina's mighty shores. It's a heave-ho, hi-ho, coming down the plains. Stealing wheat and barley and all the other grains. It's a ho, hey, hi, hey, farmers bar your doors when you see the Jolly Roger on Regina's mighty shores. When you see the Jolly Roger on Regina's mighty shores. Hi, Macy's. That was the Arrogant Worms, and I hope you're all dancing to that while it was playing. Them Arrogant Worms were telling all you hosers what to do when you lose your farm or your job or your hope. You laugh at them bastards, and you become a pirate. A herg. After all, wasn't it that limey insider George Bernard Shaw who said that the one thing the rich and powerful cannot tolerate is to be laughed at? Well, laughing at the bastards gives us back our minds and our power. It shows them and us that we're not afraid of them because... Frankly, they're pathetic. And then we're free to become a pirate, leave their bullshit forever, and wage the fight on our terms. And that's what we do here on Here We Stand. It's March 5th, and I'm your host, Kevin Anik, Eagle Strong Voice, a proudly disloyal Canadian and one of the commanders of the pirate ship known as the Sovereign Republic of Canada. Today we'll be helping all you galley slaves take a rest from your oars for a minute and draw strength from our laughing at the criminals in high places who you're also worried and afraid of. Then maybe you'll break your chains and abandon the sinking ship known as society. There's plenty of room for you here on board our good ship Kanata and on the other proud vessels in our revolutionary fleet, but only if you pull your weight on our voyage to a new world. Well, you know, folks, whenever my Scottish ancestors were about to wage a battle against the normally 
much more powerful English army, they'd turn, lift their kilts, and expose their bare asses to the invaders. And whenever the Brits themselves would fight the French, their longbow archers would raise two fingers at them. That's where we get the middle finger gesture from. Those two raised fingers showed the French that the Brits were about to pull back their longbow strings and wipe them all out with a flood of arrows. Because the moment you mock your enemy, their power fades and yours grows, because you've set the terms and the terrain of battle. That's especially true the bigger your enemy is and the more monstrous their crimes. Because as good old Willie Shakespeare observed, whatever begins as tragedy always ends up as farce. And for instance, and speaking of farce, haven't you ever wondered how that mythical COVID virus tends to linger at the front door of restaurants where you're ordered to put on a mask, but the bug suddenly vanishes once you're seated at your table where your mask can come off? Like Hitler said, once people believe the biggest lie you've told them, they're yours forever. Well, we say screw you, Adolf, and screw all the little dictators whose chief weapon, maybe their only weapon, is our willingness to take them seriously. After all, how do you take seriously the Royal Canadian Mount of Police, who helped the Canadian churches kill and bury generations of brown children, and then announced that they were conducting an investigation into the dis- disappearance of all those kids? That's like the serial killer saying he'll check under his own house for bodies. Well, the point is, you don't take people like that seriously. You laugh at them. And that's exactly what we did on our first Aboriginal Holocaust Memorial Day on April fifteenth, two 2005. As I stood with a dozen survivors of the residential school death camps outside Christchurch Cathedral in Vancouver, I took a bullhorn and I yelled at the churchgoers, Attention! This is the Royal Canadian Mounted Police. We know we're in there. We have ourselves surrounded. If we don't come out in five minutes, we're coming in after ourselves. Which pretty much sums it up. Well, folks, we're going to be there at the scene of the crime again very soon, in April, as the anniversary of Aboriginal Holocaust Day approaches, and we'll be in other cities doing the same actions. Also, we remember the anniversary of the day we made the enemy collapse on Palm Sunday, 2008, when 50 of us did a revolving occupation of the Catholic, Anglican, and United Churches in downtown Vancouver, and we forced them soon after that to publicly admit their guilt. I remember with great elation how on that day, the normally traumatized rescue survivors were laughing. They were laughing a lot. Well, they usually arrogant and bullying priests and cops were struck dumb and powerless. We turned the tables on them that that day because we weren't afraid of them, and we saw through their lies, and we let them know it. Well, of course, that isn't the only reason we won. One of the reasons we're able to do that was because we were armed with another weapon of our own, a B.C. Supreme Court order issued by Squamish Chief Capilano that evicted all those churches from his territory, from all of Vancouver, and that gave us the legal right of entry into those churches to enforce the eviction. Not only did that court, court order make the cops stand back and do nothing that day, but we used it with great comic effect because the church bozos played right into our hands. I remember when one of the Anglican priests confronted us angrily at the church entrance. I handed him the eviction order as the TV cameras were worrying, and I told him that under the law he had to vacate the premises immediately. I turned and pointed to the scruffy homeless Indians with me and said, these folks here are the new owners of your church. Well, the priest looked terrified, and he turned and actually ran back into the church, and he was screaming, they're crazy, they're threatening to take over. Well, then he vanished, leaving his parishioners confused and helpless and a perfect audience for our speeches as we seized the pulpit and more. And that 
Same day, our movement launched similar occupations at churches in Toronto and Winnipeg. So it's no coincidence, people, that the very next week, the federal government buckled and began talking about apologies and truth commissions. That's called counting coup and taking away your powerful enemy's strength. In practice, it's actually a pretty easy thing to do once we learn to laugh at the enemy and laugh at ourselves. Because the truth is that we're all part of the same murderous group psychosis. And once you know that and accept it, it gives you a strange new kind of courage and power. Remember one night during those church occupations, I was caught in a downtown alley by a church goon squad of three large guys who I recognized were from the Catholic Church, and they were about to put the boot to yours truly. Well, as the biggest goon grabbed me, I said to him sarcastically, I bet those cheap bastards aren't even paying you much for doing this to me. Well, it must have been true because the guy looked surprised, and then he laughed. We shared the laugh, and he loosened his grip on me a bit, and that gave me the space I needed to get the hell out of there. But the right joke at the right moment had saved my ass. So here's my advice to the two or three of you who are listening, who are going to do more than just listen today, and are going to take action with us against those child killers in robes who are still walking free. Do like our sister Georgina Cameron, who I know is listening. Hi. Georgina, the semi-disabled 65-year-old woman in Australia who faced down another Catholic goon squad right in their church. Do like Georgina and be a one-person army. Remember those murdered children and be filled with righteous anger and confront the killers on their home turf where they least expect you. Get a bullhorn and, even if only from the safety of your car, tell the churchgoers and the priests how ridiculous they are, how condemned they are, as they speak of God with blood on their hands and lies on their lips. So, some of you newcomers may ask, why are we aiming at the churches? Because they're guilty under the law of the mass murder and torture of generations of children. Isn't that reason enough? It's our legal and moral obligation to do so. We're also aiming at them because they continue to traffic and kill children, and because they've always been at the heart of the past and present genocide by providing a religious cover for it. After all, who tested the drugs on live children for Pfizer and Lilly, Eli Lilly and GlaxoSmithKline in the Indian hospitals and residential schools, whose actions laid the basis of the present COVID tyranny? Who other than the Vatican Bank is funding the Chinese takeover of North America? So, we not only mock and bring down that kind of high crime, but we understand it, and we expose how it happened, including the medical genocide, which is still so very much hidden. You can go to murderbydecree.com and learn more about all of that. You can write to us, Republic National Council at Proton Mail to get on board. But, you know, at this point in the work we're doing, it requires a real soul-searching, asking ourselves, are we willing to take that step? Because if we're not willing to take it for a child... Are we really willing to take it for ourselves? We're going to hear next about that medical genocide. It's a brief interview I did with our sister, Georgina Cameron. I wrote a play, which became blacklisted. It's called The Land of No One. And in 2017 and 19, we tried producing it in, on Vancouver Island and in Toronto, and it was shut down twice because of the subject matter. It's a play about when Canadians have to face their crimes, about how one white Canadian family is forced, forced to do so. Now, after this uh, interview I did with her, we'll be back with a lot more. So, Kevin, um, the, the, the book that, that um, I reckon we could start with is the, the Land of No One. And 
and and you know it's it's an incredible work it's actually a play it's the play that twice was banned in canada that nobody wanted to watch and so um it covers the deep underbelly of you know the nice yeah. the nice place in the north and um and why it's it's really really re- relevant um here down here down under in australia is that of course it, it parallels what what's been going on here and so i was wondering if you could could update us on on on, on what what triggered you to you know, create this story into a, into a play. This band work, you know, the way in Canada, censorship is always so nice, you know, three times it's been shut down twice in Canada, one in the States and because of the subject matter. And I should preface it by saying everything I read is based on real experience, either my experience or the lives of the people I've met a lot of native people. So this play is about a Canadian doctor called Oliver Purpoint who worked in a place called the Nanaimo Indian Hospital where the name is fictitious, but it's based on real people. He took Native children in over many years and experimented on them. He sterilized them, tried out drugs from Pfizer and all these people pushing the COVID thing, used Native kids experimentally, tortured many of them to death. I've seen the mass gravesite at the former Nanaimo Indian Hospital. So I wrote a play based on that. And in the play, Oliver Purpoint and his wife Adele are living this nice retired life, you know, uh, in Vancouver. And their daughter, Fern, finds out about what he did. And so in this white Canadian family, the the, uh, shit hits the fan. The, The crows come home to roost, if you like. They have to face. They're a metaphor for Canada, what they haven't done yet. Canadians have not looked at their crime. They've danced around it. They've talked about work. You know, they use the genocide word as if they know what it means, and they don't. Uh, denying and suppressing all the evidence, covering it up, silencing people like me. And so the play was really about this. And the first time we tried to produce it five years ago on Vancouver Island, it was shut down by two government puppet native chiefs. Um, and that's be- uh, because their their own fathers were involved in bringing the kids from their own tribe into these Indian hospitals to be experimented on. And we talked about that. And as soon as they heard about it, uh, Fred Thorne and Willie Seymour, bang, they shut down the play like this. They threatened the actors. They paid off the director. I just didn't hear from anyone again. Right. So uh, the second time was in Toronto. And again, nine actors, very interested. We had one reading of the play and these nine Toronto actors were gobsmacked. They just said, this play has got to be produced. Every Canadian's got to see it. A week later, they all vanish. I don't hear from any of them again. Uh, they just disappear off the map. And I know they're still around because I see them, but wouldn't have anything to do with me or the play, you know, whether somebody put a gun in their mouth, whatever. And the third time was in the States, and they said they couldn't produce it because I had mentioned, uh, you know, the vaccinations, how they were, they were uh, really bioweapons. And they were first tried out on Native people and are still being tried out, as we know, on all of us. So it gives you a sense of, like, how easily and quickly it happens. Uh, You know, when a a person, a banned person like me or a banned issue, like the homegrown genocide is talked about, bang, you know, trying to get people to even look at this now. That's why Mm -hmm. I published it, so that people can see, you know, yet another uh, censored work and the whole story behind it, right? 
Yeah, and you know the the kind of workings of this underbelly is 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 what it's all about. And you know, for myself, um, I've been between here in in Sydney and um, uh, and New York trying to find a producer, and it's like the same thing is going on. You know, it's like an immediate like you know, it's we don't want to hear that. You know, um, well, partly that's the that's partly the human reaction, like. Uh, I didn't know, 25 years ago when I first began this work about the death camps they call residential schools, working with Native survivors of these places, um, I didn't think, I didn't really know my own country, right? But I didn't think that, um, uh, you know, it would be so unpopular. But when you think about it, there's three issues it touches on that nobody wants to hear about. A, children being killed. B, Native people. And C, criticizing churches. You know, all three of those, we do that all the time, and it frightens people. Even atheists are afraid of churches, right? It's this kind of wired-in fear of the parental figure mm. in the pulpit, right? Mm. And so, I mean, it's it's really a, a, the ultimate David and Goliath battle here, right? Mm. And yet mm. the amazing thing is that when you don't give up, you have such power because – all these people know they're guilty, and so it's very easy to provoke them and expose them and get them to overreact, which is often how we expose things. That's how a lot of this yeah. stuff came out. It's how we force the government to issue the bogus apology, right? Just yeah. Pressing the nerve. Yeah. And and look, you know, about about this sort of like, what are we doing about this? You know, um, for all the listeners, um, I, I just really encourage you, like, you, you know, start with this. This was. Out of the last three books that you wrote, Kevin, um, it, it was this book that just, oh, my God. You know, I, I was struggling to grasp um, this thing, you know, these tentacles of this kind of whatever it was, the thing, you know. Yeah. And um, But it was it was the land of no one. And see, in, so here in Australia, it's really easy to um, – I started with my own backyard, you know, um, Terra nullis literally does mm-hmm. mean the land of no one. Like when these uh, pale faced arrived in Canada and here in Australia, um, yep. it, it's like just the the, the extermination on mass. Um, well, that's for, for a disgusting, obscene land grab. You know, that's exactly why I chose the title because that's an old term going back a thousand years to Rome. Uh, Terra nullis was the term in Latin, it goes back to Roman times, it says, if you're not uh, a baptized Catholic, you don't exist. You're not a human being. We have the right to take your land and kill you. Right. That's still Vatican doctrine, right? Uh, and But what I find, I, I did a play in the words because, in fact, they're describing themselves because they're really soulless. It's a soulless institution, a soulless culture, and the people doing it, I know because I've had, unfortunately, a lot of contact with them, they're not people who own themselves. They're not people who even react to the most minimal human emotion of these are children being murdered who have been murdered and the blood is on your hands. They look at me blankly like I've got a problem when I say that to them, right? Mm-hmm. And and so they are the land of no one. They become the thing that they, you know, accused others of. And, yeah, um, yeah. And, and that's the irony of this. Yeah. Yeah, kind of the what, big yeah, yeah, the choke. irony, the, this, the, yeah. the, the dimension, the same dimension, and yeah. and I've had that experience too, taking on the on the, on the churches, like, um, yeah. you know, they 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 actually sort of try and drown me out, you know, because they're so right. kind of caught 
in this. And there's so, speaking really honestly, I, 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 I get what it's like to be caught in this web of what, what we, we believe, the illusion of what life is about. You know, you march in time and, oh, you don't really like it, but, oh, well, you know, I mean, you know, they say that's what to do and, I take well, it on the chin, you know, I've taken it on the chin all my life. And, but, 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 you know, but this, and, 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 um, and again, you know, I think, I think, um, th- this book, it's so, even though it's a play, it, it just really encapsulates. It's like, you know, the most, like I never, Kevin, I, I just could not, you know, this is how I'd sum it up. I, I just could not believe that there is a capacity in a human being to, to do the kinds of atrocities to another human being. And, and, and in the play, like as I'm reading, um, it's, it's as if like, you know, you've got this protagonist, this, this pillar of society, um, you know, ex missionary doctor, the, the main protagonist. And you're in the living room a lot of the time. And it's, it's like you're kind of, you're with like Hitler in his, his last days. Literally, it's like you, you've right throughout the play, you've, you've, you, we've been listening to, my God, you know what, you know these these things, and um, and then you know it just is so shocking. And um, and 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 I'm saying all of this because it it, it was the key to my sort of grasping the real um, workings. Of, of the corporatocracy between crown and state, um, the church. And, and, and here in Australia, historically, um, it was, you know, big pharma. Like, they, they were already okay. um, getting so going. On that, on the first point, um, just because there were about three things there, so I didn't want to miss any of them. Um, you know, we're talking about group psychosis, and in a system of, we're all in a, a mass psychosis of a, of a genocidal culture and tradition. But it isn't genocide anymore because genocide means targeting one group for extermination. It's It's all being killed. We're all being killed now, right? And within that system, when you're in it, you can't see it. You're the fish swimming in the water, and you, mm. you know, you hear the words, but it doesn't connect at a feeling human level because you're dissociated. Uh, to be part of a murderous culture, you've got to be permanently dissociated that you can get through in a day, right? Yeah. It's like you know that the, the Auschwitz commander yeah. planning the gassing of all these people, and then he goes home. He, they had a home inside yeah. Auschwitz with a nice wall and then garden and his kids were playing in the garden. And it's such a beautiful metaphor for the way we live in this culture. It is. We've got our little garden and a little mind how we live. And we're part of this killing machine that's killing yeah. the whole planet and all of us. And it so when you and take one example of that, this is the purpose of the play because at the very end, um, mm. the uh, peer point, the doctor was talking to Josh, this journalist, and he's being very frank. He said, well, no, our aim was to make the human being race all robots. We're, that's the way you control everyone's mind with microchipping and the, you know, the nanotechnology that we use native kids to experiment on. Now we're using it on all of you through the shots. And you're all going to be integrated into one mind and there'll be peace and everyone will be in harmonies. You know, they're the, we're a social engineer here. We're, we're creating the perfect race. You know, it's Hitlerism taken to its logical extent. So, we're all part of that thing. And do we have a future? I don't know. I seriously doubt it. But 
that's the omni side we're talking about, and that's kind of the mm. underlying theme of this whole book, right? The whole play. And see, that's why you know that's why it's such a great work. That's why it's it's um, you know you ha- having having a vision that that's that's much more like encompassing of all the players and what's really going on, and and um, how um, at the end of the play it's it's just uh, it's so. Oh, you know, you 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 just left speechless because the play ends with um, the naming of the children. It begins. Um, uh, it, you, actually, it's a visual presentation, it, and so in the audience, you are reading the the actual name of the eight year old, the six year old. You know, um, I won't go into the details because it's just it's just too horrific, and um, but how they how they were how they were killed you know how they were deliberately and so cruelly um well let me let me just give people a taste of that joey tatouche these are real names and real based on the evidence and are murdered by decree.com yeah this is a result of the interview of 357 witnesses right um Joey Tatouche, age five, died of experimental injections. Nanamo Indian Hospital, February 5th, 1967, burial site unknown. Arnold Sylvester, age 13, died of experimental injections by German-speaking doctors. Cooper Island Catholic Indian School, February 1938, burial site unknown, etc., etc. Multiply that by 50,000 times and you get a sense of the massacre, right? Yeah. And Kev, plus... Plus the adults in those hospitals with those SS German, you know, um, what they went through, you know, just just being eventually just, you know, bleeding to death and whatever from being experimented on for having, you know, being sterilized and all this stuff. And, yeah. Um, well, so you know, that's like, why Canada and Australia, you mentioned Australia and Canada, they're very similar societies frontier societies or what they call settler societies where you had this big indigenous population that had to be exterminated and how it went how it happened was almost identical under the same crown authority led by the catholic church primarily uh crown and church working together to exterminate and then you take the remnant and you can find them in a colonized condition getting their their state-funded leaders to help wipe them out wipe out the remnant to grab the lands and the resources right Identical in Canada and Australia. So, I mean, that's why this play is so relevant and, and why you'll get just as much opposition there as we get in Canada to it, right? Yeah, yeah. And, you know, um, it's like you, you said, it's um, right now, um, it kind of, which way is it going to go because of, you know, the, the forced in- injections already of the, of the native peoples here, and the thing is about Australia is that it's not one homogenous um, group of natives. It's it's no. like tens of hundreds of nations, and um, and you know three years ago, these 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 bastards army guys, you know, just they they arrive in a helicopter in the middle of nowhere. And they start convincing the 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 natives in this in this just just minding their own business in the bush, um, and you know convincing them that that there's a that, you know there's this terrible thing called a, 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 a you know SARS-CoV-2 
so-called virus and that, that, that they've arrived to be the savior and, um, and look and, and, and passing out lots of gifts and loading them into the, um, planes and they were never seen of again. That, that was already three years ago, you know. Well, you know, and, and like I said, um, one of my friends, uh, Frank Ermanskin, said this to me years ago. Well, when the whole COVID thing started, he said, well, this is nothing new to us. You know, these shots, like, welcome to the reservation. I think it's uh, it's payback, not just blowback. It's payback on all your whites for what you did to us. You can't do it to other people without it affecting you and being turned on you. Like, kind of the image the monster we created is now turning on us and consuming its maker. Yeah, and I'm that's- really... Well, I see what's happening now, right? Yeah, I'm. I'm so glad you 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 remembered um, your pal Erskine with that one. Yeah, like welcome to the reservation. Like this is yeah. yeah. Mm. So maybe uh, maybe that'll mean people will act in more than just a self-serving way, which is the way all the quote activists I know they're all upset because it's affecting them now. But where the hell were they ten? 20 years ago when we were pointing this out happening to their brown neighbors and they didn't give a shit, you know, yeah, that's we, right. we, yeah. you know, we, we had, we'd hold a protest and there'd be 50 natives and one white guy, me, right. That's, and the whole city would know about it and nobody would come out. So I'm thinking, well, why the hell should I get so worried now about what's happening to you guys? You brought it on yourself, right? And we're back. Yes, that was a uh, actually a series of these. Um, Georgina and I are going to be doing brief 15 or 20-minute interviews about the, the different books I've written. You know, there's so much information, and that's the trouble with this. It's, I can understand when people first hear about this for the first time, it's a lot to get your head and your heart around, but it's actually a very simple story, and it's been so well-documented over the years. This is why I find it amazing. You know, I'm sitting here some nights thinking, all right, it's been 25 plus years. The whole world has learned about this, millions of people. Why did nobody ever call? Over the years, there's been not one college that's called suggesting I come and lecture. There's not been anyone going beyond the good work, Kev, keep going, to actually saying, okay, I want to get involved. What can we do next? It's like people are frozen. Now, it isn't just on this issue, of course. We know talking to groups all over the world, and I do this Republic Alliance call where we're trying to work with common republic groups in the world to set up ways that people can take back power in their community. But they're all saying the same thing. It's a handful of people, and they freeze up after a while. Their minds freeze up. Now, you know, looking back 50 years, which actually this year uh, is the 50th anniversary of my first involvement in political protests. It was after um, actually 9-11, 1973. It was the date the... Uh, IND government in Chile was overthrown by the CIA and um, because they were having the temerity to take over some of the resources and distribute the wealth to the people more. Couldn't do that, so they had to overthrow them. 30,000 people were murdered in that coup, and a lot of the refugees showed up in Vancouver. And at, a, at age 17, I'd been involved in uh, high school activism, you could call it. We had a student Bill of Rights movement in Vancouver. Uh, trying to get equal rights for students. I got our student council to stand down. We set up a student assembly in, in, you know, in our school instead, instead of a parent-run, teacher-run 
called Student Council. So I had been involved in this kind of activism, but on a higher level, I began to meet these Chilean refugees, and it just blew my mind, opened my world, because these people were actually trying to do it. They were trying to make equality a reality and, you know, distribute the wealth directly, not waiting for the government, just taking back the factories, distributing the wealth to the people, kind of, you know, kind of thing Jesus would recommend. And the more I met these people, the more I realized, well, you know, it was so obvious to all of us what had to happen. And back then, 50 years ago, you'd put up a poster, because we didn't have computers, we didn't have any of that. You'd put up a poster, and hundreds of people would show up to a meeting, and there would be outrage. There'd be, you know, we used to go down, we would, <laughs> if any of you know Vancouver, right across the street from the Christchurch Cathedral that we occupied many years later, Rural Bank uh, investing in Chile, so we went in and did a die-in in the middle of the bank. We got some ox blood and poured it over each other, and we lay on the sidewalk on Georgia Street as the blood flowed, ox blood flowed down the street. It stopped traffic and everything, and people were coming around saying, what's going on? What are you doing? You compare it to now, and the level of not only awareness, but just at a human level, human emotions, they seem to be gone. Now, I don't want to get too sci-fi-ish on this, and, and people have got all sorts of different theories why that might be, but I know on the ground, and because that's what I do every day, work with people on the ground, it's like people are literally in a zombie state compared to before, even compared to 10 years ago. And one of the things we discovered in our Indian residential school research and in the Indian hospitals was early on, there were ex-Nazi, well, there's no such thing as an ex-Nazi really, but these Nazi doctors were brought over to Canada en masse. As a matter of fact, Canada brought more Nazis in after the war than any country in the world because they were the conduit for Project Paperclip, the scientists to go down to the States. But a lot of them stayed in Canada, especially the mind control brain modification work. And these guys developed a drug called chlorpromazine. Now, it's called the zombie drug. It's uh, a date rape drug on wheels. If you insert it in the water supply, and they've done this, they've experimented on prisoners and school children, and others, as we found from all these documents and eyewitnesses. It, what a, uh, Dr. Ruth Kyander, one of these Nazi scientists at the uh, Lakehead University Hospital, Thunder Bay Hospital, uh, where they were doing a lot of this research, using a lot of the local Cree and, and uh, Ojibwe people, a lot of them who died, she used the expression, Ruth Kyander used the expression, that chlorpromazine reduces people to a state of disinterested consciousness without losing consciousness. What that means is you seem to be awake, but you don't take in what's happening to you. You've lost critical judgment, and you've lost the ability to act on what you know. And I'm not trying to freak people out here, but the simple biochemistry here is if you insert that in the water system of any city, you get what you have now. People who don't react, who look at that, and, and they, they are worker ants, soldier ants. They obey orders. They do what they have to do. They have a functional intelligence not a critical intelligence. They can't do that anymore. So I definitely have seen over the decades critical intelligence pretty much being eradicated. Now, it doesn't affect everybody, and that's the key, because a chemical solution, a chemical dr uh, drug, doesn't affect everybody in the same way. But what does affect, and we, they knew that from the U.S. Re Air Force research using these Nazi scientists who pioneered the, the whole mind control science, they know that electronic uh, medium controls the human mind much more than a chemical drug does. Chemical drug will control about 90%, 90-95% to of people. But what controls everybody is electronics. And we know that, and I might be you know, preaching to the choir here, as some of you 
undoubtedly know this stuff, but I'm applying it. We're not just talking about it in the abstract. We're applying it to now how we can overcome it on the ground because I find what overcomes it on the ground is action and inspiration. And what they found with the electronic control of the human brain is we're all energy. We're all energy signals. And if you insert um, enough biotechnology in the body, you set up a grid whereby the human brain becomes a receiver of whatever is sent to you, including emotions, thoughts, memory, anything can be pumped into the human mind, provided you're plugged into the system. A, you've been microchipped. B, you're on the Internet or iPads or whatever where you can be fed subliminally the messages. And that's why I say to people, look, whenever you want to call a meeting, people immediately say, good, let's set up a Zoom call. Let's do that. No, turn it off, folks. Meet face-to-face. This is the way we fight back on our terms. Like what we were saying earlier with laughter. Laughter, mocking the enemy, takes back the power. But you do it on a more basic way. You meet face-to-face. So do not ever talk about anything over the Internet or emails. Meet face-to-face. Hold a meeting. Talk about what you're going to do. Suddenly you find the power comes back. And that's, in a roundabout way, what I've been saying is, is that with the new mind control soup that we're in, it's the only way to operate because if you operate in their terrain, you've lost already. And the Internet is their terrain. The the whole way it controls communication and information, everything. It's operating. It's like Owen Lucas in one of her interviews said to me. He said it's like Robin Hood and the boys using the Sheriff of Nottingham's palace to plan their overthrow of the Sheriff of Nottingham in. You don't do that. You go off their radar and you operate separately. And in terms of the work in the Republic of Canada, that's what we've been doing for over eight years now, as we've been saying to people, you know, at first we tried setting up the assemblies. They got easily infiltrated and sabotaged because they were so big, involving so many people we didn't know. Setting up cell groups works more effectively, but 90% of that work has to be off the radar. That's why you haven't heard about it a lot, because we've been setting up these networks off the radar. Because when things really come down, that's what we'll have to fall back on. Everything you rely on now in the system is going to go. And that's why we need to build these alternatives now. So that's really behind a lot of our work. But it's that inner emotional and mental weapons we have, like laughter, like mocking the enemy. And by the way, mocking, I remember from our, my anthropology classes, I watched this um, film. You may have heard of the Kong people of Southwest Africa. They were called Bushmen. But they, they're kind of the original hunter-gathering kind of society of people of in family units, 9 to 15 people in size. And... Uh, the anthropologist Richard Lee from Toronto, he, he went and lived among them. And before he, he left, he, he got a big ox and he slaughtered it and had a big feast for all these Kung folks. And he couldn't figure out because they were all making fun of him. They said, oh, this is a scrawny ox. Where did you find this thing? What are you, stupid? They were ridiculing him. And he, he felt, you know, being from our culture, he felt insulted. His ego got deflated. You know, I'm trying to help these poor people. But what it was, he understood this, in hunter-gathering society, in our most original human society of the family unit, and that's basically what we still are, family units, in that basic society, the only way you could control a threat to your society was through bringing the person back in line emotionally. You mock them. You ridicule. That served a purpose historically and anthropologically, it served as a way to rein somebody in so they didn't pose a threat to the whole society, so they didn't gather too much wealth, so they didn't gather a bunch of people around them and started killing you. As, you know, well, I, in other words, so the, preventing the development of what we got now. 
And they did that by emotional pressure. I remember in a, a more recent example of that, and this is a beautiful story, the uh, clan mothers, uh, the Mohawk clan mothers in Ganawage, which is the uh, so-called reserve north uh, west of Montreal, Gantanero Horn, one of our uh, allies, she was telling me that the chief, you know, the puppet government bank council chief, had hoarded all the residential school, quote, healing money that was supposed to go to survivors. He was stealing it all. So one day the clan mothers, all six of them, got together. They dragged him out of the bank council office. They pulled down his pants, and they publicly spanked him in front of the entire gathered tribal council and everyone. And they just laughed him, and he ran. He just got out of there, and they never saw him again. They ridiculed him and brought him in line. And that's the purpose of mocking and ridicule. It isn't simply to you know put them on the defensive and get the high ground, which is how I was talking about it earlier. It was to reestablish our basic equality and democracy among each other. That's what Kamala is. That's what Kanata means, Ganata. In the original Haudenosaunee language, it means where the people sit as one around the council fire, nobody over anybody else. That's the three basic axioms of nature. Nobody has any natural authority over anyone else. Nobody has the right to more wealth or the land than anyone else. We live in a peace and take care of Mother Earth and each other. It's that simple, the three basic laws. Well, we keep bringing people back to those basic laws. Now, in a society like ours, where it's so confused and <laughs> complicated and everyone's in a state of fear and repression, self-imposed quite often, it's hard to see that, but we can reestablish it on the ground. That's really what our attempt to establish the republic, whether here or anywhere in the world, that's really what it's about, reestablishing those basic human face-to-face relationships. One of the first things we do in the assemblies, we pass laws saying, okay, tax money stays in the community. We're keeping control of the money now. We're going to fund our own community. We're going to set up our own schools with the curriculum we want for our children. We're going to take back the land. We're going to distribute the land equally, that kind of thing. And it's a hard job because it's breaking the ice. But once you start doing it, the power people feel among themselves, because we're just going back to what's natural. And that's the vision of what we do on the ground. So that's how it all ties into, you know, we laugh at at the so-called powerful because they are ridiculous. They think they have a power that's illusory. And whether that's a king or a pope or all these other fanciful titles that don't reflect anything but ego and, and fiction... And that's the whole philosophy that guides what we do, including holding these <laughs> occupations and mocking the powerful. And that's what we're going to be doing. I should say, in the upcoming months, there's two dates I want you to remember, very important, not just for the struggle to expose and stop genocide, but for all of us. April 15th, as I mentioned earlier, the Aboriginal Holocaust Memorial Day on 2005, that's when we first started this public campaign to, you know, take on these churches, the genocidal churches, and their backers. Um, and the also the um, June 12th to 14th, 25th anniversary of the first tribunal ever to bring up these crimes of genocide in Canada. Now, on that day, I'm not going to say too much now, but around the world, though, that day, June 12th to 14th, it's going to be the site of a new attempt to set up a new tribunal. And there'll be more on that, but especially in Canada and in Vancouver and Toronto, where these actions were focused, we're going to be holding events on those two days. So mark them on your calendar, April 15th, June 12th to 14th. There'll be a lot more on that in the future. Because, you know, we talked earlier about omnicide. It isn't just the extermination of one group now, but we're all 
facing this. The monster we created, this machine, is turning on us now. It's turning on its maker. You know, in unconsciously and consciously, all of us created this this machine. That's this monster, this Moloch that's now turning on us. And in a way, it's kind of ironic and funny when you think of it in the long view. But it's also an unstoppable thing. Once it starts, it plays itself out. And that's why these churches are continuing to do their crimes and no one's stopping them because it's playing itself out. Well, we draw a line in the sand and say, no, we're not going to be indifferent anymore. We're going to stop this crime in our own neighborhood. And uh, I should I just want to end on this this brilliant thing. I, it was part of a flyer we handed out at the seminaries, reaching the people before they become ministers to try to show them what they're part of. And uh, it's an extract from a book by uh, Kurt Vonnegut, who survived the Dresden firebombing where 40,000 people were incinerated uh, in one night. Um, And in it, he says, uh, let me read this. The visitor from outer space made a serious study of what humans call Christianity to learn, if it could, why Christians found it so easy to be cruel. He concluded that at least part of the trouble was slipshod storytelling in the New Testament. He supposed that the intent of the Gospels was to teach people to be merciful, even to the lowest of the low. But the Gospels actually taught this. Before you kill somebody, make absolutely sure he isn't well connected. The flaw in the the Christ stories, said the visitor from outer space, was that Christ, who didn't look like much, was actually the son of the most powerful being in the universe. Readers understood that. And so, when they came to the crucifixion, they naturally thought, oh boy, they sure picked the wrong guy to lynch that time. And that thought had a companion. There are right people to lynch. Who? People not well connected. So it goes. And so, the visitor from outer space made a gift to the people of the earth of a new gospel. In it, Jesus really was a nobody, and a real pain in the neck to people with better connections than he had. He still got to say all the lovely and puzzling things he said in the other gospels. But the people couldn't understand him, so they amused themselves one day by nailing him to a cross. There couldn't possibly any repercussions be any repercussions, the lynchers thought, because he's a nobody. The reader would have to think that too, since the new gospel hammered home again and again what a nobody Jesus was. And then, just before the nobody died, the heavens opened up and there was thunder and lightning. The voice of God came crashing down. He told the people that he was adopting the nobody as his son, giving him the full power and privilege of the son of the creator of the universe through all eternity. And God said this, From this moment on, I will punish horribly anybody who torments a bum who has no connections. Well, if only eight people. But, unfortunately, such a divine champion of the nobodies isn't on the scene right now, so it's up to us to do what God did in Vonnegut's tale. We've got to punish anybody who torments the nobodies. Otherwise, it'll just keep happening and keep getting worse. And, in fact, that's exactly what's happening in Canada and around the world. It's getting worse. And that's why it's all blowing back on us now, on all the nobodies and all the somebodies, from high to low. That's called the law of return. And it's a just law. So omnicide really means not only the death of everyone, but the death of meaning and hope. You know, I read the other day that there was a survey done in the States. One quarter of young teenage girls are actively planning suicide. Because it's a sense that we can't save ourselves anymore. It's lost. And it's that diminishing that's gone on of hope that I've seen happen year after year. 
And maybe that's the way it's got to go. Maybe it's got to collapse into nothing before something new can arise. That's, that's in our myths. That's in our historical experience. But we have an advantage now. Now that we know there is no saving God who's going to come down and rescue all of us, we have to now take responsibility for ourselves and what we've done. Because as long as there's an imaginary God around, we can put all the blame and all the responsibility on him or on somebody like me. And that's what I get whenever I post something on YouTube. All the comments are, you're wonderful, Kevin. You're an angel. You're a saint. Keep going. Well, I sometimes write back and say, no, I'm not. I'm just an ordinary guy who did all these things with extraordinary determination and courage because I had to. And each one of you can do that too. Stop putting it on me. Take responsibility or you're still a slave. And so that's what I said to all of you now. Don't listen. Try writing back. Try getting involved wherever you are. We're not saying how to do it. We're giving you some guidelines, but you've got to get involved where you still can. That's a simple message. Because stopping the war against us now is like light trying to vanquish its own shadow. We have to take responsibility for all we are. And in closing, I remember that poem from Walt Whitman during the American Civil War. Amidst the carnage of that war, he said and wrote, Oh, I see flashing that this America is only you and me. Its power, weapons, testimony are you and me. Its crimes, lies, thefts, defections are you and me. This war so bloody and long is you and me. I dare not shirk any part of myself nor any part of America, good or bad. And I think of that when, you know, there's talk now on both sides of the aisle in Congress saying there's a civil war coming. Some Congress people are even saying, let's break off from America. Let's have a civil war. Well, we know who's that. That is serving. China, of course. They want a civil war in America. But as the drumbeats are going and people are ripping themselves apart, we've got to remember, like Walt Whitman did, this is all coming from us. We have to turn and own the darkness and embrace it. That's the only way we can overcome it. We embrace our own evil to say before the end, enough is enough. We are separating from it. That's why we go into these churches. We're claiming them back and saying, your crime done in the name of God is a particular abomination when done to children. That's why your time is over. It's a radically overturning act to laugh at and mock the enemy that is not only them, but all of us. And so, I'm going to leave you with that today, just in the last few minutes. Again, to remind you, murderbydecree.com, Republic of Kanata, K-A-N-A-T-A, republicofkanata.org. Write to us, Republic National Council at protonmail.com. Link up with our Republic Alliance movement, now in nine countries, working to achieve the same vision. It could be the only lifeboat you have 10 or 20 years from now, folks, so get on board while you still can. And, again, to announce those very important dates in April, uh, Good Friday, and don't forget, Palm Sunday was the day we took, in, uh, took over that church that forced the whole apology process in 2008. So Palm Sunday, Easter Sunday, and April 15th, Aboriginal Holocaust Day, we'll be holding actions and teachings. Write to us, Republic National Council at ProtonMail.com if you want to be involved in this, as you must. And also write to me, angelfire101 at protonmail.com. Georgina and I are going to be back with more of these uh, brief little descriptions of my work, not just the books, but all of the evidence we've accumulated over the years. And uh, also, don't forget, June 12th to 14th, the 25th anniversary of our tribunal in Vancouver that first brought out these crimes. There'll be a lot more on that in the future. 
Now, in closing, we're going to go back to our good friends, the Arrogant Worms, and they're an uh, Alberta group in Canada, Canada, and they're going to sing a song which goes close to my heart as somebody born and raised on the prairies, and that's called Ontario Sucks. <laughs> so that's our closing song for today, folks, and take the show, post it, share it, stay tuned. There'll be a lot more of how to get involved in reclaiming your mind, your shadow, your nation, and the world for the sake of the least of these, our nobodies, all the children still lying in the ground calling for justice. This is Kevin Annett, Eagle Strong Voice. I thank you. CN Tower too. I hate Nathan Phillips Square in the Ontario Zoo. The rent's too high, the air's unclean, the beaches are dirty and the people are mean. And the women are big and the men are dumb and the children are loopy because they live in a slum. The water is polluted and the mayor's a dork. They dress real bad and they think they're New York and Toronto. Ontario. I think I pretty much hate all of Ontario. Oh, yeah. Me too. I hate Thunder Bay and Ottawa, Kitchener, Windsor, and Oshawa. London sucks and the Great Lakes suck and Sarnia sucks and Turkey Point sucks. Moose I took a trip to Ontario to visit Brian Mulroney. He beat me up and he stole my pants and he put me in a tree. I went to see the Maple Leafs and got hit in the head with a puck. I don't even know how they did it. I mean, I was playing the organ in the time. sucks and Alan Fitch sucks on Ontario sucks. Yep. Actually, you know, now that I really think about it, I, I think I pretty much hate every gosh darn province and territory in, in our country. Well, except Alberta. Oh, yeah. I love Alberta. Yeah, it's really nice. Lots of cows, trees, rocks, dirt. Ooh, ooh, ooh. But... I hate Newfoundland cause they talk so weird And Prince Edward Island is too small Nova Scotia's dumb cause it's the name of a bank New Brunswick doesn't have a good mall Quebec is revolting and it makes me mad Ontario sucks, Ontario sucks Manitoba's population density is 1.9 people per square kilometer Isn't that stupid? Saskatchewan is boring and the people are old And as for the territories, they're too cold And the only really good thing about the province of British Columbia Is that it's right next to us Cause Alberta doesn't suck But Calgary does Baby boy the prince Time on cash my rope. Extreme entertainment. Oh, oh. Yeah. This is the way.